Now you can show your support for Inside MusicCast by making a donation at InsideMusicCast.com. Your donation will help us to continue producing future episodes of Inside MusicCast and keep Inside MusicCast radio streaming 24-7. You can also receive special Inside MusicCast merch, such as t-shirts, stickers, and coasters for your support at various levels. Find out more at InsideMusicCast.com. From all of us at Inside MusicCast, thank you for your support. In 1980, Scottish-born singer-songwriter Ali Thompson released his first album on A&M Records titled Take a Little Rhythm. The title track garnered heavy airplay in countries around the world and reached as high as number 15 on the Hot 100 in the USA. He then went on to record a second album for A&M the following year titled Deception is in Art. While the pop scene delivered success for Thompson, his sights were set on creating music that contained more depth and musicality. Ali continued writing songs for a variety of musicians over the years, but a few decades later, he returned to writing songs for himself and released Songs from the Playroom in 2019 that featured a track titled Aqua Blue. During the COVID pandemic, he went back to work creating yet another new album titled The Last Rodeo, which was released in September. Here to talk to us today about his career and this incredible new album release is Ali Thompson. Hey, Ali, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, guys. Very excited to be on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we all know that um, you know a lot of people in our audience are familiar with your music and your in your catalog, and they also know that uh, you're Scottish-born. But now you're living in London. How long have you been living in London, uh, Ali? Well, I actually uh, I don't live in London. I okay. live down in the in the countryside. Okay. Uh, about I guess about an hour and a half um, west of London. Gotcha. Um, um so we've i lived there was a period where i lived in los angeles when i just after i made my first record i spent the really the next four or five years mm-hmm. on and off living in la yeah and then we then we moved back to london and when i started to have a family we decided we wanted to kind of move out of london and move out into the country so i've pretty much been in the english countryside for the last 30 years so beautiful that's that's kind of, and we've literally just moved house three weeks ago. So we're in a new part of the English countryside. <laughs> and as we spoke a little bit earlier before we uh, went on the air, uh, you're, right now your studio is in a box. <laughs> it, 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 well, several boxes, actually. And I, and I live in a the village we've moved into is a very quiet, small village. So yeah. I'm going to have to have some sound treatment done because... Um, in those situations, if you start if you start getting a mix going at sort of ten o'clock at night, and the neighbors <laughs> the neighbors kick in, you d- you really don't want that. That's yeah. not good. You get too loud for plan. the neighbors, and they're going to quelch your uh, inspiration there <laughs> real quick. <laughs> exactly. So so yeah. So it's all ve- it's all very stuck in boxes, and I, I probably won't get the studio back up and running right um, till the beginning of the year because we've got quite a lot of stuff to actually do to the house. Abs- so. Absolutely. Well, we're going to be touching in on the LA significance and the moving back and forth a little bit, but we also want to just tread a little bit on, on uh, you know, your, your upbringing a little bit. We always like to touch touch base with, and one uh, thing that me and Rick were talking about is is that we know we all of us here have, you know, we have brothers and sisters, and maybe li- our listeners also have brothers and sisters who might have yes. influenced us some way, somehow in their pathway, and you know, my brother, my big brother did. So I'm throwing that question to you because you have a big brother named Doug, and he had a little bit to do with your musical he, pathway. He, he did. He yeah. did. We were, um, we were, we were, I'm the youngest of three brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, my eldest, as you say, is Doogie. And um, in my formative years, really very, very early teens, he joined a band called Supertramp. And um, who's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And he was um, interesting. Sli- slight detail: my eldest daughter has just got married uh, about f- four weeks ago, and my and Doogie came over from Chicago, which is where he lives now. Mm-hmm. And in my uh, father of the bride speech, I I made a little tribute to him, and I said that Doogie was the ultimate big brother because he from a very young age he always encouraged me and he supported me mm-hmm. and that really feeds into the sort of discussion we're having about his musical influence you know Do- doogie was never within supertramp he was never a, a a writer um but he was he was a bundle of energy and a bundle of kind of 
positivity and and that fed into me as a young boy he really helped me a lot we we had a slightly dysfunctional family in that my mother passed away when we were very young hmm. and the family split up but doogie was kind of he moved to london whenever i was on my summer holidays from school he would say right come down to london because i was still living in scotland then and uh, he just always always was positive and encouraged me without ever really directly being involved in the music you know yeah i you mentioned <clears throat> super tramp and, and they're one of my favorite bands of of all time i yeah. absolutely love that band and and sadly i've never been able to see them perform live that's it's one wow. band i never i got to, i never got to catch so <laughs> yeah it, you you know that exp expression they say sort of be, being in the room where it happened um yeah. i spent most of my young teens being in the room where it happened you know i'd wow. i'd come down from cool. from scotland uh, for my summer holiday i remember particularly the when they were finishing their what was their first sort of very six they'd made two albums before crime of the century yeah. crime of the century was the album that doogie had joined and that was their first you know really properly uh, successful record mm -hmm. and and i came down age 13 i think i was for the school holidays you know and they were right in the latter stages of finishing crime of the century and i was allowed to come and sit in the corner of the studio and and wow. watch them and and it was just it was magical, you know, to, to be, to see that kind of creativity going on at such a young yeah, age. I can imagine. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but then, you know, as, as I got older and, and their success grew, the, the live show became a great thing to see as well, because yeah. they put on a, I think for their time, they were really one of the most, it wasn't theatrical, but it was almost like a film show sort of thing. They had amazing mm. lights and they had amazing bits of film that would feature. And, and yeah, it was, a, it was a kind of unique. There were other bands, I guess, at the time, like perhaps maybe Genesis or whatever that were doing that. But yeah. Supertramp sort of had their, definitely had their time as a live band mm -hmm. uh, that I think kind of was quite groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Yeah, I can't imagine. I would have loved. I would have loved to have, have witnessed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. No, it was. It was. It was a sight to behold. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, in the seventies, uh, you were playing in a few bands, but uh, I understand the way I understand it, you ended up moving from Glasgow to London, and wasn't it your Doug or your brother Doug who uh, encouraged you to to make that move? Uh, not really. Oh, <laughs> no, okay. He he, he kind of said, "Don't come to London." And oh. I said, "No, I want to. I want to come to London." But he was still <laughs> Supertramp hadn't moved to um, to California yet. They were still living in London. So essentially, I I had a place at university back in Glasgow. Had my exam results been better, and so the the idea really, I was just coming for the summer. I was just coming maybe for six weeks. But I had no intention of going back to Glasgow, so I was determined to stay, you know, in London. Um, so he put me up. I was allowed to stay at his flat, and I just basically went looking for a job, and I got a job in the end, as um, you know, like as a tea boy, like a what what do they call them? A gopher, you know, gopher. in the office. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in a mu but it was a music company, but that was nothing really to do with Supertramp or Doogie. That was, I just literally applied for a few jobs in, in I really wanted to work in a recording studio, but I, and I, but I couldn't get an, an interview to, to work in a studio. So I ended yeah. up being a T-boy, a record company, management company. And that was, that was, yeah. And that got me established living in London. And then that winter, Supertramp, the whole, you know, organization moved to California. Yeah. Um, and then I, yeah, then I, I stayed, I stayed in London for the next four or five years, really. Mm -hmm. Is is that when you started uh, um, getting little gigs for, for writing and songs and that type of thing? Is that what was happening at that time? Uh, yeah, there were a couple of, I, I, it was strange. I, I, I actually, through the working at this record company, management company, I started to hang out. My job was really, was supposed to be nine to five. But of course, for me, the great excitement was what happened after five. And I'd go to the studios mm -hmm. with the bands and I'd, I, I'd hang out with a few of the bands there. And one of the bands, you may or may not, they were, a, they were actually a Scottish band, but they were quite popular in Europe called the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. Okay, okay. Um, um, they were they were again quite an adventurous rock band, and I got I started to do a bit of songwriting with one of the guys in that band, 
that in turn led to us forming a sort of side group, as it were. Um, but it featured the drummer was um, a drummer called Dallas Taylor. Okay. Now you may know that name because yeah. he appeared on the very first album I ever bought, which oh. was Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills, Nash. Nash, yeah. Nash yeah. Young. He's on the cover. Gre yes. Greg Reeves and Dallas Taylor. So yeah. he was he was the drummer in that band. Wow. Um, yep. And so I was at the time I was eight, 18, I think, on maybe nineteen, and Dallas. Um, lovely guy but i mean he had some serious drug problems at the time oh. so the whole the whole thing was madness but that was really the first band that i started to to play in that were with what you know professional musicians okay uh, and, and i played bass and sang in that band gotcha. but that led me more into the songwriting thing um and then my brother reappeared because the band split up. We were about to sign a record deal, but I, th I think probably Dallas's um, drug habit was found out by the record company. And so they, we didn't sign a record deal. And so Doogie said, well, why don't you just come out to L.A. and hang out for, you know, for a few months? They were living, Supertramp were all living in a place called Topanga Canyon yep. then. Yep. And so I went out and that's really when I seriously started writing songs and singing my own songs, did some demos. Then the demos got sent back to, to London to a variety of record companies and publishers. And, you know, almost yeah. overnight I got offered a record deal. So that, that's kind of, sorry, that was a rather convoluted and long story. Yeah, but no, no, <laughs> no, I want to, I want to touch a little bit about your writing because people just don't snap their fingers and become a writer. I mean, you just don't, it just doesn't happen. But had you always been the kind of guy that always, even as a kid or a teenager, you know, writing notes here and there or lyrics laying around, that kind of stuff, or collecting type Absolutely. of, you know, that's Absolutely. what it is, right? Talk to us 100%. about- 100%. Yeah. I mean, I, I did, I did buy a guitar um, and I did, the, I did buy a sort of guitar book and learn um, but I was always, um, I was always, I was, you're right. I was always writing little stories and little poems and, mm -hmm. and getting my kind of lyric ideas together. And I did sing a bit. I mean, I was in school choirs mm -hmm. and I'd, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd, I'd sort of sung in, in little school bands and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I guess I was writing songs from like 12 or 13, yeah. but never, re never really taking it that seriously until this little phase, as I say, when I, when I was in LA and, and I just, I just thought, well, I might as well try and write a bunch of songs. And actually several of those songs ended up being used on my first record, including, um, take a little rhythm. So, yeah. So to so talk to us a little bit, bit because, um, we know that Doug, Doug, he had, uh, he had a connection some way, somehow, and he got you an interview. It, the first interview in, in L.A. was, correct me if I'm wrong, is that A&R Records? Uh, I, again, no. Doogie had nothing, was nothing to do. The, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly where that information comes from, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Doogie was never directly involved in, in me getting record deals gotcha. or anything like that. That okay. was all. What what happened during that period when I was, I say, I was staying in Topanga Canyon with him, Supertramp had a little demo studio, and they allowed me to go into that studio and record some of my songs, um, which I did. Yeah. But actually, the, 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 re the record deal side of it came when I moved back to, when I had done my summer in LA and I moved back to London. I then played my stuff to some music publishers mm -hmm. and I got signed as a songwriter to a music publisher. And it was actually that music publisher, a guy called Bob Grace, who then went and got me a record deal. Um, so it was, it was really nothing to do with Supertramp. Um, you know, that side of it, you know, getting gotcha. a record deal, okay. getting a publishing deal. I'm sure it, it, it certainly didn't do any harm that my brother was in at that time, one of the most successful bands in the world. But, um, but they were never directly involved in that process, no. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you released uh, Take a Little Rhythm back in 1980, yes. you know, it did very well. But but I guess, didn't you take a little heat for, for some of the tracks sounding like McCartney? Apparently, but I, I, di I didn't ever, it didn't ever sort of um, become an issue okay. in terms of people mentioning it in, in interviews. I mean... I obviously I read reviews where people said I sounded a lot like Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. And I also remember, I think there was, because I used the soprano sax as the introduction, 
uh-huh. um, there was some comparisons to um, I've forgotten the name of the song now, but I know that it was Tom Scott played the soprano sax on this particular song. Uh-huh. Was it What the Man Says? Was what that the man it? Says. Yes, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. What yep. the Man Says. That is that Tom song, Scott, yeah. yes. Yeah, and so that was a rip because I'd pl- I'd my sax player that I had at the time played tenor, and I said, you know that Tom Scott, what's that, what um, pitch is that? Is that? And he said, that's a that's a soprano sax. So I said, well, yeah, let's let's put soprano sax on the intro of Take a Little Rhythm. So I suppose you could say that that was an <laughs> yeah. influence. But I mean, if 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 there was. Um, comparisons with McCartney well first of all wow that's pretty great yeah, right? yeah I know exactly um, I think I'd be okay and, with that <laughs> and, and, and if it, if I sound like him I just think that's musical osmosis isn't it I mean you Probably, just yeah you grow up listening and singing along with certain singers yeah and um you just you develop your voice accordingly you know um but yeah, I, I I didn't feel I ever got heat for it. It was mentioned, no, but yeah. it, it never it never bothered me because, yeah. like I say, being compared to Paul McCartney, is pretty <laughs> bad. no, I listened to the album and it's 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 a solid album. I mean, it, it did re- very well, in fact. It did it did good. Uh, Take a little rhythm was, was obviously opened a lot of doors. Um, uh, Live every minute. That song did okay did a sort of i think it was th- in the 30s mm-hmm. but the thing that was w- that was fun was that it happened in lots of other places as well so it was very successful in japan uh, it was very successful in south america so you know it o- it really opened a lot of doors for me not just in one territory do you know what i mean i i felt oh i can go to japan and do stuff and i can go to brazil and do stuff um, as it transpires, I didn't do any of that, <laughs> but yeah. the song mm-hmm. the song opened a lot of doors internationally as well as the states. Great tune, sure. Hey, you know, before we move on to the to this other question, I was just curious. We haven't asked about this yet, but thinking about Paul McCartney and the fact that you know you said you kind of maybe it just came out via osmosis, or you know, I'm assuming you're a big Beatles fan. But what were some of the other musical influences that that really kind of molded say the your, your style well i guess that f- comes right back to why we are talking tonight because my immediate musical influences uh, as a sort of late teens was really west coast music i okay. mean i like i said to you the first album i ever bought with my own pocket money was crosby stills nash and young mm-hmm. uh i was um, i was into the eagles i was into um well i mean you know who isn't into Steely Dan? You right. know? I, mean, I, I was massive. I, I, there's a lot of soul music I loved. My, you know, probably my favorite record of all time is a singer called Donny Hathaway. Oh yeah. And um, Donny Hathaway Live was was a huge yes. and still is a record that I play when I want to feel uplifted. You know. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So that that whole American sound was really what I was listening to, age 13, 14, along with a few of those you know, British sort of, I guess you'd call them prog rock bands, you know, like Genesis, like um, Pink Floyd, that sort of stuff. Right, yeah. Emerson um, Lake, yeah. I mean, yeah, Emerson Lake, yeah. But I think that the Beatles, the Beatles thing just, so so I'm I'm seven, eight years younger than Doogie, um, but Doogie was a massive Beatles fan. So again, mm-hmm, as a young yeah. boy around the house, the Beatles were being played all yeah, the time, it was you playing. know. Um, so, and I would, they would make me sing along to the, to the songs as a form of torture, I think probably, but <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, so, so I, yeah, just, it was all, the Beatles were always there. And, and later on, obviously I just grew to, to love their music so much, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. still do to this day. Sure. In 1981, Deception of Art, you re, you released that album. That was your next album. And, uh, yes. which is a wonderful album. I love listening to it. And, and uh, it's apparent you had a change of mind as to where you were pointing with this project. So talk to us a, bit, a little bit about, about uh, oh, did anything change or was it all deliberate? It's, it's, it's a different little sound here on this second album with that, that only you recorded a year after the other one. I, um, yes, yes to all of those questions, mm-hmm. Eddie. Um, I, I, I got a bit of a... Um, I don't know. The whole thing of Take a Little Rhythm being a hit was yeah. was great, but I was only 20, I think just about to become 21. Jeez. And AM kind of saw me as perhaps like a little pop teen 
<laughs> idle thing. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. And I really didn't want that. I wanted to be taken seriously and I wanted the music to have much greater depth and more, perhaps more complexity musically. And so Deception as an art was my sort of attempt to try and make some music that was just a bit more advanced, a bit more mature. It kind of backfired <laughs> because in, um, although the record was critically well received, especially again in places like Japan, NM didn't really want to get behind it. They they wanted me to go back to doing something simpler and more pop. And um, that's kind of when, when I fell out. Basically, I, I basically just fell out with AM records because mm -hmm. they they saw me as a as a as doing more pop, simple stuff. And I I I'd started to want to do more, I don't want to say jazzy, but certainly music mm -hmm. that with a bit more harmonic complexity. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, you just spoke about, you know, take a little rhythm. Uh, you were only 20, I think, right, at wow. the time. And yeah, I mean, I was probably 18 when I wrote it. So yeah. yeah. Well, that kind of leads me into the next question, because as a writer, you know, how has your composing changed or evolved from, you know, the early days to today? How, how do you feel it's changed? Talk to us about how you've seen this over the years. Wow. That is a very big subject. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think musically, it's, it's just that you become a more... You, well, a you become a better musician, and you le learn more about structure and mm -hmm. harmony, and mm -hmm. um, but you also in the middle of all this. So there's take a little rhythm, and hopefully we'll talk about my, you know, coming back to making my own records again. But in the middle of all that was years and years and years of being a jobbing songwriter, uh, mostly a collaborator, either with other songwriters yeah. or with artists. Um, mostly directly with artists, mm -hmm. and you're constantly learning. You're constantly learning your technique. You're constantly learning about arrangement and structure and all that sort of stuff. But I believe when you start out making music, that basic DNA that you have, whatever that is, remains the same. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had a great conversation with a friend of mine the other day there, a singer, a really well-known session singer here called Tessa Niles. And Tessa was saying about my new record, she was saying the extraordinary thing is that there's a direct line still between the music you're making now and the music you were making almost 40 years ago. Hmm. She can hear. And so whatever that thread is, I think people are just born with that sound or that that musical yeah. um, sort of imprint. Do, do, do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, so, so of course, I've, I've learned tons more about arrangement and voicings and production and technology and all those, mm -hmm. uh, that myriad yeah. of stuff we have to learn. Right. But the fundamentals of songwriting and what, what moves you I think it's not that different than it was forty years ago. In no, a yeah, funny kind I, of way. We, we can understand what you're saying. I mean, it's it's a, you know inherently your DNA is your DNA, whether it's forty years ago or it's it's now. There's always a little bit of you. There's always something, some of you in everything that that you're creating. So no, we understand. Yeah, that absolutely, completely. Absolutely. And and my voice is my voice. I can't I can't really change that. I mean, that has changed over the years. Insofar as that, it's I don't. If if I sang "Take a Little Rhythm," uh, it wouldn't be in the key of C. I can assure you. <laughs> uh, it, so so you you know your voice changes, but again, the the way that I sing and that my um, the melodies that I want to sing are still kind of the same. You know, they're still you know I'm still thriving to have that lovely lovely chord changes and a, a, maybe a modulation, but still keeping the melodies really at the forefront. Um, yeah. That's super important for my writing. Yeah, very cool. You know, let's let's fast track a little bit to a few more years after that, to, to 2018. And that's when you yeah. released a beautiful album called Songs from the Playroom, which the Playroom obviously is your recording studio. Um, that's right, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but what inspired you after a few years to come back and to delve into another solo project? Well, um, I think that process uh, and that sort of job, is, which is what it became, of being a writer-producer for other artists. Um, mm -hmm. I had some great years and I've worked with lots of fantastic artists, but I was just getting to that point where it wasn't fun anymore. I was really not enjoying 
you know, that especially when you're working with a lot of very young artists and their managers and their A&R guys. And I just was I was just not enjoying it. I was feeling like I'd put in tons of work on on a project and then the artist would get dropped or the record company would completely change direction on the way they saw it. And so I just said to my publisher, I know you think I'm crazy, but I'd like to not do that for a while. I'd like to stop writing with artists, stop writing for other people mm. and just try and see if I can write a bunch of songs for myself. So it it was more as a break. I just wanted to take a break from being a writer-producer for other people and see if I couldn't reconnect with why I loved writing songs and why I enjoyed singing my own songs. And that's how it started, and that's what became Songs from the Playroom. The more of, the more of it I did, the more I sort of, you know, it's... <laughs> terrible analogy but it is like it's like pulling on a jacket you used to love you and you go i don't think that fits me anymore and then you put it on and you stand in the mirror and you go you know what i don't look too bad in this jacket so that's kind of how, how it felt it felt like I, it wasn't as it wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be and yeah. and and also i i had some songs if i'm honest i had some songs that were that i had recorded years and years before that were just sitting there and i've i've always i always felt Oh, that song was never really finished properly and it would be worth, I mean, a classic case in point would be on songs from the playroom. There's a song called black comedy. Yeah. Um, and that was a song I'd written years and years before, really? but I, I just thought that could really work with a batch of new songs. And yeah. so I re I kind of rewrote the track. Um, and actually that's one of my favorite songs on that album. I think. Well, that's what we were going to ask you is, you know, how many, after the sort of little lapse of, of a few years of not, you know, producing your own solo albums, that doesn't mean that you've stopped writing. Basically, you're just, there's more notes to, to compile. So, but we love this album. This is, this is really, really nice. It feels totally different, uh, you know, than, um, you know, than the previous work. And, and the songs are really mature. I mean, creative, fresh. I mean, the songs like um, Aqua Blue, um, song, yeah. song for a Broken Heart, Easy Love, yeah. and Be the One, and many others. But um, you're pretty much, you know, you should be very proud of these nine songs. Um, but to go Thank back, you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But to go back to your point, how many other songs had you penned that you didn't use that that you oh, that were in lies boxes? Or? <laughs> yeah, I mean, tons and tons. I mean, I went through a period because when I after I left A and M, I did I did try and make my own records again. I left A and M. There was there was a, that's when I back to our very first thing we were talking about about people you've had on your show i did a bit of work with david foster um initially just because he liked he david liked the stuff i'd done on my first two albums and obviously he was becoming this rising star in la at the time both as a musician arranger producer writer you name it and so um i did a bit of writing with david with the idea of maybe doing another album and and I remember, I think was it, I think it was Warner Brothers Records was interested. A, a guy called Tommy Lapuma, I yeah, think. Yeah, of course. So so so, and then and then CBS in New York, they they flew me out to New York to do some tracks. But it just it just never happened. It just the, the songs didn't come together, and mm -hmm. the music business being what it is, it just got very complicated. And 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 I just that's when I decided I didn't really feel like I wanted to do that. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to almost in a sense, expose myself to that abuse, you know, <laughs> that record companies give you, but it never, I never really stopped writing songs as you put it, Eddie, just I'd, I'd get songs and then just put them in a little drawer somewhere, you know, and, and mm -hmm. keep them for another time. It just so happens that that another time was 30 years later. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but black comedy was absolutely one of those songs. I probably wrote that. I probably started that song in in the mid eighties, you wow. know, not not that long after I did my second album. So, yeah, well, you know, staying with this album, uh, songs from the playroom. One thing that Eddie and I really enjoyed about it is that it sounded so natural, mm -hmm. and um, you know, your your vocals are spot on, and the I didn't feel like the songs were like overly produced. Do you, which leads us to this question: Do you produce and engineer your own work? And and so talk to us about that aspect. We just get a little nerdy and talk about the recording process. Absolutely, I I, I do everything pretty much myself. Okay, most of that out of necessity. I mean, these these yeah. records, both songs from the playroom and the new album, are done on a tiny, tiny little budget. 
And if I have any money spare, it's for musicians. That's okay. kind of what my, my extra money is. So all the technical side of it is, again, it's just something that I've learned over the years. Yeah. I mean, I've produced lots of records. I've always pretty much had a studio in one form or, or, or another. And so I've become, you know, very, you know, for years it was Logic and Pro Tools. And now I use a thing, a universal audio program called Luna. Uh-huh. Um and so I've always been quite um, technology-driven. Um, so putting the records together from that side of it, I feel I feel very confident in my skills in that mm. area. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that that wasn't a big that wasn't a big hurdle. What was a what was a bigger hurdle in a sense was um, my own performances because I hadn't sung in a long time. Yeah. Um, and if you, I don't know if you, either of you guys are singers, but you, you know it's it's you can quite easily become insecure about singing. Um, it doesn't take much to make you think that's a terrible vocal. <laughs> you know, I'm going <laughs> to put that straight in the trash. Um, that process th- through songs in the playroom that took me a while. The vocals took me a while again just to become confident with singing again and enjoying my own voice and that you know. But the technology side of it and and the musician's side of it wasn't such a big issue, really. It was just finding the right people um, yeah. to play on on both albums, actually. Just out of curiosity, do you have a uh, a favorite mic that you like to use on your own vocals? Um, or does that oof. matter to you? I'm just curious if, if you were particular I, about that. I, the mic I use mostly on this album was a Browner. Do you know it's a German yeah, um, yeah. valve mic? So uh-huh. I used that on my vocals. I, d- I did have a another vocal mic that I loved, but it was um, it's actually, a, I think originally was a, they're a Chinese company and I've now forgotten the name of them and they make... Um, they make valve mics, but anyway, this was a limited edition valve mic okay. that they made. But I had this crazy engineer that I used to use to for some of my productions, and he took the in, he basically took it apart and he put <laughs> in all these new components, like a new yeah. new new valves and and a new diaphragm and yeah. all this sort of stuff. And it sounded fantastic, but it huh. kept going every five minutes so, <laughs> so so it was it, yeah when it when it worked it was great but when oh. it didn't work it was rubbish so i ended, and so i bought this browner because it was a, they're a german beautifully yeah. handmade valve mic so most of the vocals on both albums i think it's the browner that i'm using okay <laughs> yeah thanks for that well guys let's lift let's uh shift gears and talk a little bit more about um the fourth solo album which is what we're here to talk about um the album is called the last rodeo and uh ali it took you around two years to to really uh create this uh you know compilation of 12 tunes and we know that during that whole time it's yeah let's call it the COVID years that we're calling it that yeah, exactly. but, yeah. but uh we, we really love this project lots of great vintage keys even some horns scattered throughout and very nicely done but my Thank question, you. but my question is this: Once this project was in the bag, and you had yeah. finished mixing it and that type of thing, and you heard it for playback, how, what did it make? What did it make you feel like? Um, probably prouder than I've ever felt making music before. Mm, um, okay, because it was a. I really. Just from a personal point of view, sometimes I mean I'm sure every artist will tell you they, their their music is fabulous, you know. But I'm quite critical of my own work, um, and I loved a lot of the songs on songs from the playroom. But it it was a bit of an adventure. It was like let's try this and see what happens. And so I wasn't as keen on all of the songs. This album, I've really grew to love the songs, and I'm really really proud of of several of them. I think there's. You know, I think they are some of the best songs I've ever written, um, and um, yeah. So that was that. That's the thing that I think when I when I played it back, I really, I just hoped that people would would like it as much as a lot of people liked songs in the playroom. But mm-hmm. but personally, I was just very proud of the fact that, and also the fact that I even managed to get it finished because again, money was tight. They were crazy times. Recording was complicated because everything on the record is done remotely so it's just it was just me in my studio essentially for 18 months and of Mm. course the other big difference with the new album is the songs were all written 
real time as it were it was it was the songs were written for that album there was no old songs they were all brand new songs and i overwrote as well i must have written and recorded probably 17 or 18 tracks wow um and then i'd get to a stage where i'd say okay i'm not loving this so much and i'd put it to one side and work on another song um so so it was it was a quite a challenge to finish it um so looping back to your original question yes mm -hmm. proud was very proud that well, i managed to f finish the record well the first thing that i that i um uh you know, we've we've listened to this project uh, a few times already, you know, from the front to the end, and uh, and the thing that I notice about it is just we can, you know, we know that you've grown as an, an adult. You know, you're not, you know, we're all, you know, older than we were 30, 40 years ago, that type of thing. But now you you um, you know record this project and. And you can see that that someone has grown up, someone's mature, and your perspectives on everything is so much more simple. I, I see it more as clarity. I think it's just not overdone. You you said it and didn't yell it. It was just very nicely done. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you very much. That means a lot. Um, yeah, I mean the songs. The the, the one of the other aspects. That, about this album is I think there's a nice variety of style. There's songs that are of a similar style, but there's a nice little variety of styles and instrumentation and um, stories as well. There's the, the, the songs all have their own little stories. There's a, there's, I think there's a good spirit about the record, but there's also a bit of humor in the record. And yeah. I think it's a, it, I feel it's more of an old fashioned album in that there's a sort of beginning, a middle and an end yeah, to, the, yeah. to the record. Um, and of course, my dog features on the last track. Which is very, very important if you have a dog. <laughs> that was great. That's funny. Do you know? Do you know who Lenny Castro is, the percussionist? Yes, I do. Yes, yeah, he he put out his first solo album a few years ago, yeah. and we, mm -hmm. I think the best song on the album is one that his his wife wrote, and yeah. uh, it's it was called "Honey's a Good Girl," and it's about his dog, and the dog's featured dog. barking throughout it. It's it's just <laughs> awesome. It's a one minute well, song, I, and it's it's just it's so catchy. I sing the same thing to my cats, and just say, and just change the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, that's what I wanted. I wanted to put a little song at the end of the record that was just a bit of fun, <laughs> and you know, and I got Robbie, you know, Robbie McIntosh who plays guitar for me. Uh -huh. I, he's a, he's a fabulous. Um, he can do all the lovely finger picking, mm -hmm. and I wanted something that was just, you know, upright piano finger picking, and just a really <laughs> cute little song about about walking the dog. So that, yeah, that that, that it made me chuckle. And of course, Truffle, who's my dog, yeah. has a little howl at the end of it, which was <laughs> which was good. <laughs> well, hey, uh, Eddie, uh, let's take a break because there's a track on this album that I think our listeners will really dig, mm -hmm. uh, and it's one that um, kind of has kind of a West Coast sort of feel to it. And this is a track called Video Stars. And this is from our guest today, Ali Thompson, from the brand new album, The Last Rodeo, on Inside Music Cast.
you know, it was a long time ago, but Eddie, Eddie and I had Mark Jordan on Inside Music Cast, and didn't he contribute to uh, the song Real World? Yes, he did. Yeah. Mark and I are very, very old friends. Mm-hmm. Um, when I when I lived in LA in the eight, mid eighties, um, I lived with Mark for a little while. We were sort of yeah, I lived in his house, and we uh-huh. I wrote I wrote a couple of songs. It's funny we we're we're great friends. He's godfather to my eldest daughter. You know, we're really close oh, friends. Wow. Um, okay. But he and I didn't write songs for years. So when I first met him, he was doing an album for i can't remember the label it was it was the album was called hole in the wall mm-hmm. do you know that album um the single was margarita was the was the i remember the, the tune all right margarita yes yeah. very nice so, so i wrote i wrote a song with him on that album um called love like a wheel um and so we wrote then and we and we just became great great friends but then we never wrote music together again so and i'm a massive fan of his mm-hmm. um, and so he he if you if you were to do an interview with him and ask him about me he would say he was the one that encouraged me to start making records again mm, which oh, is wow. not not in, not entirely true but he, <laughs> he did always say to me ali you need to start making records again so cool. when when i was putting tracks together for this record i'd written what became real world i had all the music and i and i had i had my idea of how the chorus should go and again i was just struggling with it a bit and i thought i wonder if i send this take my vocal off and just send the backing track to mark and just see what he comes up with and um and that's basically what happened so i sent it to him and he he three or four days later sent me back his version of the song and then we tweaked it a bit and that's it and then and it, what was great as well is that uh, he did some little backing vocal ideas, and I managed to actually keep his original backing vocal ideas in the chorus. So you can hear Mark if you listen carefully. You can hear Mark huh. on the chorus. Oh, that's that's cool. very cool. Very good. Yeah. You know, we mentioned a couple seconds ago of the musicians that played on the album, and and being that it was uh, the time that it was, we know that a lot of this was recorded remotely. But talk to us about some of the musicians that uh, contributed in, uh, in as key key players. Yeah, so both albums um, featured the guitar playing. If I'm not playing guitar, mm-hmm. all the sort of elect, most of the electric parts and and a few of the acoustic parts are a, a guy called Robbie McIntosh. Yep. I don't I don't know if you're familiar with Robbie. You've heard of so him. he yes. he played with uh, he, he first came to my notice when he played with Paul McCartney, um, and then he played with. Uh, well, before that, he was in the Pretenders. Do you remember a, a yes. UK band called the Pretenders? Oh, absolutely. So Robbie. Robbie was in the Pretenders, and then he played with Paul McCartney. Okay, and then he went. He went on to play with John Mayer, Nora Jones, ton, tons of people. Um, yeah. But he's he's just somebody that I had used as a session player when I was producing, and um, when it came to doing my album, I just said, you know, Rob, would you would you help me out on my my record? And 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 he's kind of been an integral part of these last two albums. Um, I just love his playing. He's a beautiful guy. He's, he's mm-hmm. just such a nice man. Yeah. And so, yeah, so Robbie played pretty much all the guitars other than the guitars I played. And then I, through Robbie, I was introduced to this bass player called Robin Malarkey, who you might know through his work with Jacob Collier. Do you know mm-hmm. who Jacob yeah. Collier is? Oh, he's one of my favorites. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, and Robin, honestly, you know, try and do a bit of research on Robin because I, I personally think he's maybe one of the best bass players I've ever come okay. across. He's a, he's an incredible player. Okay. So he he plays bass on, I think, I think four songs on Songs from the Playroom and I think four songs, maybe five songs on The Last Rodeo fabulous player and um, and then i had s- some horns on both albums i would have liked to have had more horns on this album i just kind of ran out of time and ran out of money yeah um and then on this album also there's a backing singer who I, i've worked with for years on sessions and i used her katie holmes smith her name is she sings with adele and loads of people like that. She's amazing. So she did all the backing vocals. She did a me. great job. She did a very nice job. You know, she's fabulous. She's yeah. really a, an exceptionally good singer. And again, and this was really important to me because these records are really small DIY kind of personal things. You know, I wanted to have people on there that that were people I really liked and I knew would really like the music. 
it wasn't just a gig. Do you know what I mean? It was people mm. that really in, invested in me and invested in the music. And so that's why both albums have this pretty much the same musicians because yeah. they all seem to really enjoy the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's definitely an album. Uh, you know, drop the needle from the beginning and and listen to the very end um, type of project, which is sort of old school, but it's nice to see the continuity of a of a storyline. And, yeah. and and which brings me to the point that that you really did have something to say in writing this this album, the last rodeo, and um, you know the first track, which is a perfect example, is. Uh, one that's called Losing the Light. Yeah. And that is, yeah. you know, the being the first album, it sort of set the tone to your messages and the, your, let's just, not even the word messages, your observations of what's happening around us. And obviously during this time of COVID, you know, everything stopped and everyone was looking around and saying, well, what is happening here? So talk to us about your your messaging, your lyrics, and I mean, and what you wanted to say. Yeah, I, I... I do. It's tricky, isn't it? You don't want to become too preachy or too sort of um, too, I can't really think of the, of the way to express it, but it's important for me personally that my songs uh, say something about the way I see the world, you know, um, or as you say, or something that I observe in the world that I f- I think is interesting enough to write a song about. Um, there's a song on the album called Video Stars, which is just my mm-hmm. observation, especially during lockdown. <laughs> I just started to delve way, way too deep <laughs> into the internet. And some of the stuff that's going on is bonkers. You know, the, these, these kids that are having these, their million dollar careers by just sitting in a room <laughs> talking crap, you know, and it just, I, I, so these are the kinds of things that I, I, I wanted to write about. Now, there are love songs in there and there are songs that that are human condition songs, you know, but but there's also songs that I that I think it's important for somebody of, of my age and at this point in my life that I, I try and talk about stuff that that is important to me or at least I'm aware of, you know, that I, that I, that's worth comment, you know, um, mm-hmm. losing the light was actually one of the last songs to write. Mm. Um, and I just, on the last album, I did a song called Aqua Blue, which, yes. which was a sort of song for the planet. You know, it was, it was right. really about the, the mess we've got ourselves into in terms of the environment. Yeah. But again, trying not to be too predictable and preachy and Right. Um and and losing the light is the same sort of idea it's it's playing that double edged thing of it's about art in you know the expression when a painter's painting he uh, you'll say I'm losing the light but mm-hmm. the me- the metaphor there is of yeah. course is that we're in society and you know in terms of the environment in terms of the nuclear threat we're kind of losing the light and we're mm-hmm. getting close to some very very bad situations as as a as mm-hmm. the as a species mm-hmm. you know Mm-hmm. And that's Jesus. That sounds heavy, doesn't it? <laughs> but that's sort of what that song's about. But but uh, but done in a way that is quite up. Like I, I got a one of the fabulous things about putting out your own music again is that, especially with the internet, is that you come in touch with people who find your music again, and it it really resonates with them. And I got a fabulous email the other night from somebody who had just bought my album and um they're going they're going through a really difficult time where there's there's some illness in their family and they got my album and the first song that comes on is is losing the light which if you read into it a bit more is actually quite a, a sad song yeah. but he he just got it's a beautiful world it's a wonderful life and he he said it just lifted him it lifted his spirits completely and he played it to his wife and they both cried you know and you yeah. just think yeah that's what that's why i write songs yeah. that's yeah. that's the point you it know it works it works well ali let's take a break and uh eddie and i want to play this opening track to the album the last rodeo and this of course is the track losing the light from our guest today ali thompson on inside music cast Serengeti sunset, a 
The styles on this album, you know, from song to song, there's there's some there's some uh, variation. Uh, and on like on, like on one side we have the the last tune, which we talked about a little bit earlier, "Walk the Dog," which is an acoustic guitar-based song. And on the you know other hand, we have a song like uh, "The Last Train to Evermore," which yeah. you know it's more of a medium-paced tune, and it's just the vibe is totally different. So. You know, overall, the blend of music you know really works. So, talk to us about the different styles uh, of these songs. Uh, that's driven by really just my bait. I'm not an amazing musician. I'm, I think I've got good ears and I think I understand harmony and structure and, and rhythm and all that sort of stuff, but I'm not a virtuoso player. So the way I tend to write is I'll, I'll sit either at the guitar or at the piano, like most, most modern songwriters, and I'll, I'll mess around until I get, I get a sequence of chords that I've that's making that's inspiring me yeah. and then I just build from there and I do one of the things last train to evermore that there's quite a lot of modulation in that song yeah. it goes through quite a few little key changes even within the chorus um and I love that stuff I mean that's that's why for all these years I've be, been such a massive Donald Fagan fan yeah. because he he just yeah. just instinctively knows how to 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 modulate or find a, a little chord descending chord sequence that just elevates the music to another level and that's kind of the stuff that I'm no I'm not even in I wouldn't wipe his shoes you know but I mean <laughs> that's what I aspire to do as well but 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 maybe in a more of a more of a classic songwriter way less of a of a jazz yeah. improvisational way more in a structured songwriting way yeah. so that that's kind of how those songs come about. So they they come about really from playing piano or playing guitar, and then 
And then I do really throw it into the computer and I start, I start really, that's where my skills become, I think, at their best is once it's in, mm -hmm. in the digital domain, I, I know how to manipulate and build sounds and make stuff, try to make stuff feel really quite natural, even though it's pretty much all programmed by me. So people keep saying to me, who's playing drums on the album? You know, <laughs> I am <laughs> because it's, it's, it's all programmed drums, you know, but. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, it's, it's a new, it's a new world with technology. You can do that and make it sound great. And, uh, you know, the thing, uh, going back to what I said a little while ago is it's still not over. Rick said it, you know, it's not overproduced. It's, it's, there's, once you get it into the digital realm, the temptation for anyone to overproduce and do so much with it is so strong, but you've kept it real. And, um, you know, we're really happy, yeah, that, you know, go ahead. That's, that's that's kind of my sort of that's my sort of stamp i mean i could mm -hmm. play you other things of other artists whose records i've produced and that's kind of what i like to do i, I use the digital stuff and i i may I, I program things but like if i'm if i've come up with a drum part and a drum groove uh, it's probably because i've been listening to a record and i've gone mm -hmm. i love the way that that feels how can i get my program drums to feel like that and then as soon as you you've got that bedrock and then you introduce real players like, like a Robin Malarkey or, yeah. a, or a Robbie. And there's that, um, it, it's not completely quantized, you know, it's just, just a bit loose around the program stuff. Then suddenly it starts to become, it starts to breathe, you know, and become more like it's an organic record. Yeah. Um, but like I said earlier on, that sort of, to some extent, that is all born out of necessity. I mean, I'd love nothing more than to hire a fabulous studio with the best players and spend a month just recording them. Yeah. But I don't, I don't have the money to do that. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, you've no. got to have a lot of, a lot of funding to hire the best players and the best room and the best recording yeah. engineers. Yeah. Um, and for me, those days are not right now. Maybe one day again, I might be able to do live stuff off the floor, but yeah. but I have to. But I have to try and simulate that as best I can. Um, well, and that's that's kind of my thing, really. Yeah, you're you're certainly not alone in in that you know quandary. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, there's so many there's so many great musicians out there who have to do it the way you're doing it. You know, on their own and. And not only the, from the recording process and all of that, but the promotional part of it is oh, also, yeah. you know, very difficult for musicians, you know. Uh, Absolutely. So, because that, 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 that takes a lot of money too. <laughs> well, and that, that's, that's why it's such a blessing to have people like your good selves helping me in a small way promote my music because yeah. I am literally doing this myself. I have a little record deal in Japan and um, I – even I used to be a published songwriter and I decided for all this, I didn't want to be with a major publisher. So I, and my publishing's just administered. So I'm literally in my room. If you could see it now, I've got envelopes, CDs, thank you cards. <laughs> you know, I'm just doing it all myself. And, mm -hmm. um, which is fun, but not as much fun as making the music. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. Well, we'll tell you what. Let's promote. Tell us. Tell the tell our audience uh, where they can pick up the the CD. Mm -hmm. How can they How can they grab it? Well, currently the CD is just uh, purchased through my website. Okay. It's a very straightforward PayPal arrangement where they just order the CD and then the CDs are shipped out. I probably will do something, a distribution through Amazon at some point. But at the moment, the simplest and easiest way is just to go to www.allythompson.com and they can buy the CDs there. Right. And that's Thompson without, without a P. That's right. <laughs> that is correct. T-H-O-M-S-O-N, <laughs> Thompson. Yeah. Ex yeah. Exactly right. And you'll be able to get there to enjoy this great record. Um, you know, the new project is called The Last Rodeo, and it's by Ali Thompson. It's his fourth album, and, and we encourage everybody support music and uh, pick up the album. Pick up the album. It's worth a listen. It's, it's, it's quite a lovely album. And uh, Thank I, you. I think it's right in the pocket of our listeners. Yep. So everybody get out there and uh, let, let's support Ali and, and, and get this in your hands. So, hey, one, one more question real quick, Ali. Do, uh, are you performing live? Do you have any live gigs that you do? And, and where, where do you do those? I, d I don't really. Um, I, I mean, I'm, 
I'm a studio guy, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I last year w- during lockdown, I did a few little like things to camera in my garden. Like I did a little version of Take a Little Rhythm, and uh-huh. I did a version of of Aqua Blue, just acoustic sort of unplugged yeah. thing. But I, I don't really do live. Never did, Rick. It was it was always yeah. a thing for me. That I was a studio person, and I love being in studios and songwriting. I did tour as Ali Thompson when I was on A and M, and um, I probably would had i stayed on AM, had i not fallen out with them i probably would have continued to tour and my life would have been very different and i would have yeah. i i would imagine i would have become a regular touring musician but that simply never happened and i went back into the studio and the songwriting world and i've pretty much stayed there ever since okay um, all right so sadly unless the the record continues to do well in Japan. Yeah. I suppose there's a, a possibility I'd maybe go out to Japan and mm-hmm. and do some small shows in Japan, which yeah. I'd love to do. But yeah. it it takes you know it takes a, a good reason funding wise and all that to right. to be able to do that. So yeah. is that with P Vine? That is with P Vine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We want to give them a shout out because they're they're keeping some great AOR music they alive. Are. They are. They hundred uh, percent. They're really lovely people and they're very straightforward. They 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 approached me. Um, when I made songs in the playroom and I just stuck it out and they got in touch saying I had had success in Japan all those years ago. So I, I, I people didn't had heard of me, but to suddenly, you know, 30 years later say, Hey, we like your new record. Can we put it out? I just thought it was, was great. Yeah. You know, it's really nice. And they've <laughs> same with this album. I played them some, I, I think I sent them real world and, um, I think maybe Wolves. Yeah, I sent them Real yeah. World and a, mm-hmm. and a song called Wolves, and mm-hmm. they said, yep, we'd like to put out your next record again. That's fantastic. So, very, very good. Well, Ali, thank if, you if so there, much. If, if there are any American record labels that want to do, <laughs> want to take my album, uh, you know where to find me. That's right. Yeah, we'll, we'll get the word out as soon yeah. as we get out there to, to, to spread the Fab- word, you know? Yeah. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ali, Ali Thompson. And, um, you know, we'll... Well, uh, we'll keep in touch, and um, and good luck on the new project. And in the meantime, we'll be listening to it, okay? Thank you so much, guys. Sounds great. All, All right, right, take care. Cheers now. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 Special thanks to Allie Thompson for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We also want to thank our Inside Music Cast correspondents for their support and dedication, including Brian Pearson in Chicago, Kim Riley in South Florida, Scott Gross in Tampa, Mikhail Ingstrom in Stockholm, Scott Sheriff in Nashville, Don Brightup in Los Angeles, Loretta Sassaman in Seattle, Yinka Oyelese in New Jersey, and Arnaud Legere in Paris. Now you can show your support for Inside MusicCast by making a donation at InsideMusicCast.com. Your donation will help us to continue producing future episodes of Inside MusicCast and keep Inside MusicCast radio streaming 24-7. You can also receive special Inside MusicCast merch such as t-shirts, masks, stickers, and coasters for your support at various levels. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thank you for your support of Inside MusicCast. <laughs>